Are you ready to open your mind and your heart? Welcome to the fate of humanity. Crucial conversations for our survival with your host, Lauren N. Nile. We can mature beyond today's prejudice and xenophobia. We can save our beautiful planet. The keys are self-awareness, awareness of others, and most important, love. Now, here's Lauren. Hello, everyone, and welcome to my show, The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. I'm your host, Lauren Nile. Well, if you've been listening to my show, you know that I've structured my show around issues that I think are really, really important for us to understand as a species if we're going to survive and hopefully even thrive in the future. Now, I do this show because (laughs) it sounds corny, but it's true. I love my species. I love humanity. When I look at the long march of history, our long march of history over so many millennia, I I just want the best for us. And I can see that we have so much potential. And I want us to reach that potential. I don't want us through foolishness based on myths and misunderstanding about ourselves, about others, to blow our future and indeed imperil our very future existence. I don't want that for us. As a species, we are so smart. I mean, anytime we can, with the technology that existed in 1969, what was that, 48 or so years ago? With the technology that existed then, we could put people on the moon and bring them back safely? We are a smart, smart species, highly intelligent. And of course, look at where our technology has gone since then. So I want us to make it. I don't want the fact that we are much smarter than we are wise to actually doom us, despite our incredible intelligence, to obliteration. If, if, if we can only grow in wisdom to the same extent that we've grown in knowledge and understanding of the world and the universe... We can not only survive, but as I say, we can thrive in the future. And so that's why I do this show, to help us, to help us grow an understanding specifically of each other as human beings, of our human family, of our sisters and brothers around the planet. And so my show is focused on helping us unpack, if you will, all of the isms, whether they be sexism, racism, anti-Semitism, ageism, ableism, all of the phobias, homophobia, whether it's you know, heterosexism, whatever it is, my show is focused on helping us understand those things so that we can indeed mature beyond them. Because in my view, they are wreaking havoc on us right now as a species around the planet. So, because I feel so passionately about this issue, this is the area in which I actually work. I'm a trainer and a consultant, and I do workshops, seminars, uh, keynote addresses for all kinds of organizations, nonprofit organizations, Fortune 500 corporations, governmental agencies at all levels. 
um, working in a variety of areas, leadership, conflict resolution, uh, communication, etc. But my, my passion, my heart is in helping organizations deal effectively and compassionately with diverse workforces so that every person feels equally valued and um, uh, of, of equal worth in their organization. That's the work that I do, and it's work from the heart. The book that I wrote um, is called, is called uh, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line, and I wrote that book, again, <laughs> in order to try to help us understand each other on a deeper level because with the understanding I'm convinced comes increased compassion and goodness knows compassion is one of those things that we need most on our planet right now compassion for each other being able to see all of us all seven plus billion of us that are just making our way in this world day in and day out on this beautiful planet as our brothers and sisters. So, show one, my first show, this is the sixth show um, that I'm actually doing on Voice America. My first show was basically a, an, a broad introduction, an introduction to the entire series. Then show two was about our oneness, and I think it was actually entitled, our, uh, The Human Species, We're All Related, and our DNA proves it. Show three was about unconscious bias. It was, it was entitled Unconscious Bias, The Source and the Cure. And then show four was about one of the things that I think many of us are most unconscious, i.e. unearned privilege. That show was entitled Unearned Privilege, what it is and what we can do about it. And then show five last week was about Another one of those things that I think so many of us are so um, unaware, unconscious, if you will, and they are called microaggressions. The title of that show was A Real Education on the Experience of Others. Microaggressions, A Real Education on the Experience of Others. We were fortunate that in show three on unconscious bias, I was able to interview my very good friend of 30 years, Dr. Jack Straton, who's a professor at Portland State University. And then in show five on microaggressions, I was also fortunate to interview my very good friend of 27 years, Mr. Tom Finn, who works in this area as I do as a consultant. Today on show six, just follows along, intuitively I hope, and it's entitled Common Responses to Conversations about the Microaggressions common responses to conversations about the microaggressions and then responses to those common responses. So we looked at unconscious bias and then, and then two of the things that we are often unconscious about, i.e. unearned privilege and microaggressions. And today we're going to be taking a look at how people commonly respond in conversations about microaggressions. What are some of the things that people say when others report microaggressions or try to describe their experience with microaggressions, how people commonly respond, and then what are some responses to those common responses. Now, much of what I'm going to be uh, discussing with you today is found in my book, actually, note four of my book. Again, the title of the book is My Story, 
uh, race, my story, and humanity's bottom line. Uh, so we're going to be talking about how people often respond and how we might respond in a more empathetic, understanding way. Before we get to that, however, I just want to say one word um, about General John Kelly's recent statement. I think it was on Fox and Friends, on Fox News, um, about the Civil War. Just want to make a brief comment about that, and then we'll get into our subject matter for the day. General Kelly apparently said that, uh, and I've seen the clip, you probably have at this point as well. It happened either yesterday or the day before. He said that the Civil War resulted from a lack of compromise, people's inability to compromise. And then he said that Robert E. Lee, one of the Confederate generals and indeed the, I believe the president of the Confederacy, was a decent and honorable man or something to that effect. Well, I won't take a lot of time with this because we do have a a show on the common responses to get to, but I'll just quote Congressman Ted Lieu, Congressman from California, Ted Lieu, who responded to the statement that the Civil War resulted from people's inability to compromise by simply saying, quote, the United States of America exists because President Lincoln did not compromise, unquote. The Civil War was fought over the institution of enslaving human beings, human beings like me who are African-American. How do you compromise on something like that? You're either going to be a free country or you're going to allow slavery in your country, one or the other. There is no compromise about that. There is so much more that I could say about that. I'll save that for another show because we are going to have a show on history, devoted to history. But that is that story about uh, General Kelly's statement is so prominent in the news right now that I could not do my show this morning without making at least a brief statement on it. He also talked about uh, General Lee as a decent and honorable man. I think those were the two adjectives that he used to describe him. And uh, yesterday I heard Roland Martin, who's uh, an MSNBC commentator, basically read an account of a formerly enslaved person. I think this person was probably alive in the 1870s, 1880s. And and this person talked about uh, how General Lee uh, related to enslaved people. And how he gave orders to have their backs lashed when they ran away or tried to run away to freedom. And how he then ordered that their backs be washed thoroughly in brine, which of course is a sort of a saline, I believe a salty kind of solution that just burns indescribably when placed on an open wound. That was the man that... General Kelly described as a decent and honorable man. So we'll talk at another time about the danger of misrepresenting history and how it emboldens white supremacists these days. But on this show, we're going to talk about common responses to conversations about the daily indignities. And there are 20 common responses, really, that I discuss in my book, in note four of my book. But uh, 
I'm sure we won't get through all of them today. Perhaps we'll get to as many as we can and maybe do the next show on the remainder of them. Now, what is it about talking about daily indignities? Well, what I found over the course of many years of my life is that denial, denial is the most common response to discussions of of race and racism with persons who are not regularly uh, their targets. And, you know, we can talk about daily indignities based on many things, based on sex, based on disability. That's a big one, disability. Based on religion, um, you know, people who are Jewish and Muslim and Hindu and, and, and Buddhist uh, suffer microaggressions. We can talk about microaggressions based on age, based on sexual orientation and, and gender identity and gender expression, on national origin, on class, on many things. But as I said in my first show, we're focusing on race first before we get to all of those other very, very important topics because it, it's, it's my experience that it is race that is for some reason, and I have some... <laughs> ideas about why, what those reasons are, but it is race, in my experience, that is the most difficult subject matter for people to discuss. So we'll start with race, and then we'll go to all those other very important issues. So I found over the course of many years of my life that denial is the most common response to discussions of race and racism from people who are not regularly their targets, i.e. European Americans. You know, the it had absolutely nothing to do with race, is probably the most common of all of those common responses. Now, you know, while that response can and often does stop meaningful conversation and learning in its tracks, and it usually does, it had nothing to do with race. It, it, it usually stops meaning, meaningful conversation and, and, and meaningful learning about these issues just stops them in their tracks. While that's true, I honestly have no personal animus against my fellow human beings who respond in that way. You know, I- indeed, I, I really try, and I believe to a large extent I'm successful in actually having compassion for them. Because I know, and I mean I'm fully aware, that they reply in that manner because they've been very heavily socialized in, to respond in that manner. They've been very heavily socialized to not see their own privilege, you know, to not see the microaggressions that others suffer. And so how can they uh, respond in any way but with denial? You know, most, most people who respond that way truly don't know that they don't know. They're absolutely unaware that there is an entire universe of information and understanding about race, about the history of racism in our country, about the experience of others with microaggressions, you know, about which they are totally unaware. They're, 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 they just don't know. So, for example, I'm fully aware that I don't have a clue about what it's like to live with a disability. I know that, I, that I'm absolutely ignorant about what it's like to to live, you know, in a country in which the dominant language is not my first language. I don't know what that's like. 
I know that I'm totally unaware of what it feels like to be a young Jewish or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or atheist child in school around, for example, the Christmas holidays. And so, you know, I know that it would be more than grossly insensitive. It would be highly disrespectful of me to deny the reported experience of of people who do live with those realities. You know, I know that I don't know what it's like, for example, to grow up in a poor, crime-ridden, drug-infested, gang-overrun neighborhood in an inner city. You know, growing up that way is so far into my own lived experience that I, I simply honestly can't imagine it, even though I'm African-American. I know that I have absolutely no mental framework, no reference for growing up in that kind of neighborhood. I know that. So, you know... For that reason, I mean, I I hope that I would never be so arrogant as to dispute the account of what it's like to live there, you know, from someone who is trying to explain that to me. You know, I'm not going to say things like, uh, what, gunshots every night? I can believe once or twice a week, but every night? Come on. Or drug dealers inside your kid's school? Inside? I don't think so. I mean, the school district wouldn't allow that. You know, maybe outside the school, okay, but not inside. No, I hope that I would never, ever respond that way because it is not my experience. And so I know that I don't know what I'm talking about. So when we come back from the break, we're going to discuss some of the other common responses to conversations about and people's experiences with microaggressions. And then we'll talk about what some of the more empathetic responses might be to those kinds of conversations. I'll see you after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Lauren is available for readings of her book, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line, for keynote speaking engagements, training engagements, and for the facilitation of retreats. She works with both large and small organizations. Her interactive and experiential workshops range from four hours to four days in length. When working with groups, Lauren's style is a comfortable blend of both passion and peacefulness. She brings her sense of humor, appropriately, to all of her work. Lauren's work with groups has been described as eye-opening, inspirational, powerful, and life-changing. The goal of Lauren's work with employers is to help organizations create work environments in which every individual is both highly welcomed and equally valued. The goal of Lauren's speaking and training in the greater society is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. Her fervent desire is to help all people see the divine in themselves and themselves in each other. For more information about Lauren's programs, please visit laurennile.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. This 
This is the fate of humanity. Crucial conversations for our survival. To reach host Lauren N. Nile with questions or comments about the program, please send an email to author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. That's author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. Now, let's return to the fate of humanity. Hi, friends. Welcome back. So if you were with us before the break, you know that this show is about common responses to conversations about microaggressions, which is a follow-up, really, to last week's show on microaggressions. So we're talking about how people often respond in conversations about experiences, which are commonly referred to as microaggressions. So I was saying that, you know, because I didn't grow up um, in a crime-ridden, drug-infested, you know, neighborhood in which most people live in poverty, I would never respond to someone who's tried to describe what that experience was like for me. I would never respond with, ah, you know, come on, how bad could it be, really? You're still in the United States. I mean, you still have hot running water and, you know, heat in the winter. I mean, I don't believe that, you know, there was drug dealing inside your kid's school. I mean, that's just, you know, I think that's an exaggeration. I would never respond that way because I, I don't know that experience. Well, in like manner, I would hope that when I describe, for example, the fact that I am often followed around in department stores when I'm shopping, I would hope that the person wouldn't respond with, well, you know, they probably did that to other people too. You just probably didn't see it. You know, when I talk about my experience of, uh, and these things don't happen all the time. My gosh, if they happened all the time, I think I probably uh, wouldn't be very sane at this point in my life. But uh, they happen often enough for you to notice and for them to have a, an impact on the quality of your life for sure. Uh, I would hope that if I describe my experience of once again being seated in a corner or you know near the kitchen or even near the restroom in a restaurant, uh, I would hope that I wouldn't be met with, well, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, they just see people where they have tables. Why do you always have to chalk it up to race? Come on, they just see people where they have availability. You know, if I am in a conversation with a European-American friend about the fact that I got stopped when I was in Minnesota by the cop. He, I was in northern Minnesota, uh, way north of, of uh, Minneapolis. I was uh, doing some training in Minneapolis, actually, for uh, the uh, county of Ramsey, Ramsey County, which is St. Paul. And I, it was over the weekend. I took a ride, you know, to see the colors. It was in the fall. And... Uh, the cop saw me. I was in a line of traffic. Only uh, oh, it was one lane northbound going to Canada, one lane southbound coming back to the Minneapolis area. And uh, so I, I was in a line of traffic. I wasn't passing anybody or anything. And I saw him. I saw him take a double take. I saw him through the corner of my left eye. Looked at he saw me and whoa, did the double take. And I thought, oh boy, sure enough. Next thing I saw were the lights behind me flashing. I stopped. And then it started. So uh, what's your business all the way up here? Uh, well, you know, I'm doing some training in St. Paul. How long are you going to be here? Uh, just just till Tuesday, officer. I, I fly back to Washington where I live on Tuesday. Where are you staying? Uh, at the Sheraton in St. Paul. Stay in your vehicle. And then he takes what seemed to be to be uh, 
an attorney to check my license and registration, came back, gave me a ticket. All right, you just take it easy. Now, when I describe that experience, you know, I would hope that I'm not going to be met with, well, maybe you were going kind of fast. No, I was in a line of traffic. Everybody was doing the same speed. Well, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe he had some reason to stop you. Yeah, he had, he had a reason. Um, it's, it's really, really um, emotionally tiring to always be met with that response. And so this show is about how to respond in a, in a different way. So I, I, I want European Americans to understand that since you really don't know what it's like to, to, to drive while black, to shop while black, you know, I want European Americans to know that since you really don't know from your own experience at any rate what it's like to parent a black child, since that is not your lived experience in the United States, that it is, well, it is insulting, but even more than that, it's hurtful. It's deeply hurtful to deny, it's, it's hurtful to others to have our experiences denied, our experiences of race and racism denied and just dismissed offhand. I mean, I, I get that it, it might be difficult to totally acknowledge the extent to which racism is still prevalent in American society today because it brings up for many people, it, it brings up feelings of guilt, even though there really is no reason for that because all of us were born into this insanity. You know, every person alive today in the United States, whether you're European American, African American, Hispanic American, Native American, Asian American, all of us were born into this system. Nobody's responsible for it. So I understand that, you know, sometimes it brings up feelings of guilt. But, you know, and I also understand that it's easier to deny it than to really look at it and to understand how it impacts people's lives so profoundly. But <laughs> all of that said, it is hurtful when someone is explaining what just happened to them, for example, at lunch or when they were shopping last night for their, I don't know, kids, uh, you know, new basketball uniform or something like that to deny their experience. So I, I hope that both the information that I have in my book and this show uh, will help us understand that there are more empathetic ways to respond Now, I think that there are 20 very common responses, predictable predictable responses to conversations about, you know, microaggressions or people's experiences with the daily indignities, if you will. So I'll just uh, go through a few of them with you, and then we'll talk about how we can respond more empathetically and indeed how we can... Uh, come back with responses that gives the other person something to really truly think about. Or maybe I'll just list all of them. Here we go. Those common responses. Number one, you're overly sensitive. Two, come on, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. You must have misinterpreted it. I'm sure it didn't happen like that. Number three, well, 
you know they didn't mean it like that. You know they didn't intend that, so why do you get so upset about stuff like that? Number four, maybe they, the person who committed the microaggression, maybe they were just having a bad day. Five, maybe it's just their personality. Maybe they just have a sour personality. Number six, look, that could have just been their policy. Seven, well, that happens to everybody. Doesn't just happen to you. Eight, well, that happens to me too, you know. So it couldn't have happened to you because of your race because it happens to me too. Nine, well, what were you wearing? When I dress in a t-shirt and shorts, I get treated like that too. It's not about race. I mean, you know, they might have just been wearing something that made them suspicious. Number 10, well, if I went across town to the, name it, Latino, African-American, Asian-American side of town, I mean, the same thing would happen to me in reverse. Number 11, well, that's not such a big deal. I mean, it's not like they kept you from getting a job or something. You're doing pretty well for yourself. 12, well, what did you do about it? No, I'm sorry, what did you do? That's number 12, what did you do? Maybe you did something that made them react that way. Number 13 is, what did you do about it? If you didn't say anything, you're just as guilty as they are. Fourteen. Well, I can't be a racist because some of my best friends are. Number fifteen. You're just looking for it. Sixteen. There you go, playing the race card again. Seventeen. I didn't get any unearned privilege. I worked hard for everything I have. Number 18. Why should I feel guilty? I'm not responsible. I never discriminated against anybody. 19. Well, I've had pain in my life, too. Why can't you just deal with it? I mean, life's not fair. Why do you have to spend all your time talking about it? And number 20. Look. I've dealt with my pain. You know, you just have to learn how to move beyond it. So, in order for us to mature beyond racism, those I, those really are the 20 most common responses that, that I've heard over many years of my life and particularly um, over many years of doing diversity training for many kinds of organizations. Those 20 are the most common responses that I've heard over and over and over again. But, my friends, if we are to mature beyond racism, we've got to, as my friend Tom said last week, develop curiosity about people's experiences. Rather than just dismissing them out of hand, we've got to start asking ourselves questions Why am I hearing about this so much from my black friends, from my Latino friends? You know? I mean, I have a friend who uh, has a disability and, well, actually we were friends long ago. Unfortunately, we've we've lost touch. But 
once she said to me when I got out of my car really quickly to go into a gas station to get a pack of gum and get back into the car, she uh, uses a wheelchair for mobility. My friend said, Lauren, you do everything so fast. I have to think three, four, five times about exactly what I need in the kitchen before I get out of bed to go into the kitchen because mobility is so difficult for me. You know, it's such a struggle for me to go to the kitchen from my bedroom. Now, if I'd responded with, ah, Brenda, what are you talking about? You have a wheelchair. Just You just scoot in the wheelchair and wheel yourself. In fact, you probably go faster than I do because you're in a wheelchair. If I had responded that way to my friend, it would have been the height of insensitivity. I don't know what it's like to have to depend on a wheelchair for mobility. So in the moment, I just looked at Brenda and said, Brenda, I have never thought about that before. You're right. I just take it for granted because I don't have to think about it. And I, you know, I I really, (laughs) from this point forward, I have more of an appreciation, a real appreciation of the fact that all of these things are so easy for me. And what does that do for me? That raises my compassion, not pity, Not pity, but my empathy and my compassion for those who don't have mobility uh, uh, as, as easy as I do. And so what does that then do for me? It causes me in my life, for example, in situations in which I can be an advocate for people with disabilities to be that advocate, to be that ally to them. You know, so if I'm sitting in a committee meeting at work in which we're talking about making something uh, uh, accessible, you know, whether it's uh, uh, computer screens or whatever it is, that experience and my ability to empathize with my friend is going to make me be more of an effective ally. So we have to have curiosity about the experience of others, about their experiences specifically with the microaggressions. We have to be curious about, for example, well, as I said, why do I often hear about this stuff? You know, and why do people want to avoid it? Because I know what I've heard more often than not is, hey, you know, it happens to everybody or something similar. We have to be curious about, well, how do those responses affect the person who's attempting to share their experiences when they hear, eh, stop, stop whining. How does that affect them, I wonder? How do those common responses affect the the person who's giving the response how does how does how, I'm sorry how does that affect their ability to listen to really hear the other person's experiences and to learn from them how do those common responses of denial impact the possibility of deep meaningful friendship between people of different races you know can i really have a real true deep meaningful friendship with someone who responds to me in that way when I talk to them about this thing that is so present in my life? Probably not. In fact, I asked my friend Tom that last week on um, the show on microaggressions. I said to him, Tom, if you did respond that way, what do you think would have been the impact on our relationship? And he said, well, Lauren, we probably wouldn't have had the, the friendship that we've had these 27 years or so. And he's probably right. 
And then I think finally we have to be curious about how those common responses affect our society's ability, the ability of American society to mature beyond racism or any of the other isms. How do those common responses affect our ability as a society to move beyond all of this stuff, to mature beyond it? We've got to be curious about that because if we are, if we really start asking those kinds of questions with real curiosity, we'll be far less likely, I believe, to engage in those common responses, to respond with those common responses when we hear people talk about their experiences. You know, the other thing is that I think we often respond with those kinds of responses because we look at the media, and the media portrays our society as being much more of a meritocracy than it really is. You know, we see African-American, Latino-American, Asian-American sportscasters and news anchors and news reporters, and we see people of color represented in commercials as, you know, living in nice homes, and we see um, all kinds of representations in the media of our society being pretty much a meritocracy. The good news is that we have to see it in order to be able to reach for it. So that's great. But the danger of that is that it causes, I think, many of us to not really see the true ways in which the isms, and we're talking specifically about racism right now, it causes us, when we see America represented as a meritocracy on TV, it causes us to not see all the ways in which it isn't a meritocracy in reality. So, when we get back from the break, we're going to discuss how to be more empathetic in our responses, and then we're going to at least start, we won't get through all of them, but we will at least start giving some specific alternative responses. Okay? So, I think you'll find that really interesting, and I hope it'll give you a lot to think about. We'll continue on the other side of the break. Thanks, everybody. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Lauren is available for readings of her book, Race, My Story, and Humanity's Bottom Line, for keynote speaking engagements, training engagements, and for the facilitation of retreats. She works with both large and small organizations. Her interactive and experiential workshops range from four hours to four days in length. When working with groups, Lauren's style is a comfortable blend of both passion and peacefulness. She brings her sense of humor appropriately to all of her work. Lauren's work with groups has been described as eye-opening, inspirational, powerful, and life-changing. The goal of Lauren's work with employers is to help organizations create work environments in which every individual is both highly welcomed and equally valued. The goal of Lauren's speaking and training in the greater society is to help the human species grow in both wisdom and compassion. Her fervent desire is to help all people see the divine in themselves and themselves in each other. For more information about Lauren's programs, please visit laurennile.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
This is the fate of humanity. Crucial conversations for our survival. To reach host Lauren N. Nile with questions or comments about the program, please send an email to author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. That's author and speaker Lauren at gmail.com. Now, let's return to the fate of humanity. Welcome back, friends. We're talking today about common responses to conversations about microaggressions. So I'm going to now start in with a description of an empathetic response. The common responses are often not empathetic at all. Um, And indeed, they shut down conversation and they shut down learning. So I'm going to describe the empathetic response or an empathetic response. And then I'm going to follow up by giving some specific responses to those 20 common responses that I uh, enumerated, I think, in segment one. We won't get through all of them today, but I think I'll do a part two so that we can indeed finish and get through all 20 of them. So in general, before we get to 20 specific responses to the common responses, the empathetic response in general. So upon hearing someone's uh, description of what just happened to them uh, at a store over lunch, you come back from work, your colleague is talking about what just happened to them in the store or or in a restaurant, perhaps, um, or what happened to their son or their daughter last night as they were driving across town to... Uh, do homework with a friend and got stopped by the police. I, whatever, whatever the experience was. Okay, so what are some of the things that characterize an empathetic response to hearing people's description of those kinds of experiences? All right. Well, number one, to listen attentively. I have, I have five things, five suggestions. One, to listen attentively for both facts and feelings. Listen attentively for both facts and feelings. We say that we listen on two levels. We listen for the facts and we listen for the feelings. And if we respond to the facts first, we're not going to be nearly as successful in our communication as if we respond to the feelings first. So no matter what the facts, let's say you're skeptical about the facts as described by the, by the speaker. Nonetheless, we should respond to the feelings first. Wow, I can see that that was really hurtful to you. Or, whoa, I can see there was a lot of frustration for you in that, in that experience. Or, man, you, you were upset by that. I can hear it. Respond to the feelings first. And this is in communication in general, not just about microaggressions. Because then the person knows that you're listening, that you hear them. And then you can respond to the facts. Can you tell me more about that or whatever? Secondly, so first, listen for both facts and feelings, respond to the feelings first. Secondly, ask the person about the details of what happened. Can you tell me more about that? Or, wow, what what restaurant was that again? And so you were standing in front of the person who was waited on first? Or ask for the details. Wow, I, I, I just need to hear a little bit more about that. What? So what was the response of the person who was taken ahead of you or whatever it is? Ask about the details. Find out what happened. Third, ask the speaker how they felt when the uh, incident occurred. 
And how did that impact? How did you feel right in that moment when you saw the person behind you get taken ahead of you? How did that feel for you in that moment? Be curious about that and then ask the person about that. Number four, express your feelings about the event. You know, whatever your feeling is, wow, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. You didn't deserve that. That should never have happened to you. Or whatever, whatever you're feeling. Man, I I can't imagine having that happen to me. You know, I don't know. Every tenth time I go into a restaurant or every tenth time I go shopping, I, 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 I can't imagine what it would be like to live like that. Whatever your feeling is, express it. And then fifth and finally, ask if there's anything you can do to help. What can I do? You know, you might you want to go out and have a cup of coffee, you know, or um, what, what can I do? Or and I, when I'm in a situation like that, what should I do? You know, ask how you can be an ally. So those five things, it seems to me, go a long way toward expressing empathy for the person. And they do characterize what I refer to as the empathetic response. One, listening attentively for both facts and feelings, responding to the feeling first. Two, asking for more details about what happened. Three, asking the person how they felt in the moment. Four, expressing your feelings about the event. And five, asking if, if there's anything you can do to help or what could you have done or what would what, what the person have wanted you to do if you had been present at the time. You know, in other words, help me learn how to be an ally to you in that situation. Now, in my experience, the common responses, i.e. the denial responses, that happens to everybody, it happens to me in reverse if I'm on that side of town, etc., etc., In my experience, the common responses are usually not responded to very effectively. You know, the person just either goes, yeah, right, or walks away or just gives the person a a funny look. And as a result of that, there are countless learning opportunities that are just wasted time and time again. Each one of those common responses is a learning opportunity. But they're just wasted because... People often don't know how to respond to the common responses. And so what I'm going to do now is offer uh, what I believe are some effective responses to the common responses. <laughs> now, you know, I'm, I'm aware that responding in the ways that I'm, that I'm going to suggest requires a pretty highly developed uh, sense of, of, of self-awareness, uh, Uh, It requires a pretty highly developed uh, self-control mechanism. In other words, it requires a certain degree of emotional intelligence in general. And I'm not sure that it's a level of emotional intelligence that the majority of us really uh, possess, unfortunately. I mean, all of us, I believe, possess it uh, instinctively or um, uh, naturally. But I don't know that most of us have been taught to live our lives with this level of emotional intelligence that I'm about to, to suggest. So I know that what I'm about to say then may sound to you sort of Pollyanna-ish or pie-in-the-sky-ish. 
but I do believe that it is important. So I'm going to take you through those responses to the common responses. Here we go. Response number one. You're overly sensitive. You're too sensitive. Or another way of saying that, you might have a chip on your shoulder about this stuff. You ever think about that? Okay. A response to that. Well, I believe that I perceived exactly what was going on. I believe that I perceived exactly what the situation was in the moment. But if I am sensitive, I hope you can understand that it's because I've had that experience and it's accompanying pain many, many times in the past. So, you know, I think I saw the situation clearly and objectively, but hey, you know, if I'm sensitive, please understand that it's because this is not the first time this has happened to me. This happens to me. Not every time, of course, not even most times, but regularly. And so that's where my sensitivity comes from. You know, now, cut, freeze frame. Uh, I believe that when people are sensitive, it's it's emotionally sensitive about something. It's like, uh, for example, if you rub your finger up and down your forearm, if you do that for about a minute, there won't be any consequence, most likely, for most people. There won't be any consequence. But if you rub your forearm um, up and down, up and down, over and over again, for a period of, I don't know, hours, my guess is that you're gonna, your skin is going to become sensitive in that area. You're going to develop a sensitivity there. Or if you just tap it with your index finger, tap your skin on your arm in one particular area, it's going to get sensitive. Well, the same thing is true on an emotional level. When a person has had an experience, not only of racism, but of anything, time and time and time again over the course of their life, they're going to be sensitive to it. You better believe it. So understand that when people are sensitive, it's not because they're crazy. (laughs) You know, it's not because people are insane. It's because it's so familiar and so familiarly painful. So that's number one. You're overly sensitive. Number two, come on, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. You must have misinterpreted it. I- I'm sure it didn't happen like, like that. Well, the way I described it, here's the, here's the response, if you will, to that common response. The way I described that experience is my perception of it. You may not agree with that perception, but I just ask you to understand and accept without judgment that my perception is based on many years of life experience with this, an experience with which you may be totally unfamiliar. So, you know, you're saying maybe I'm misinterpreting it, maybe it's just my perception. Well, it is my perception, but my perception is based on a lot of experience with this. So I ask you to just accept that it's my perception without judgment, without assuming that my perception must be wrong. And that's it. Now, the person may come back with yet another, uh, you know, common response. Well, I mean, don't you think maybe sometimes you can misinterpret this stuff? And once again, if they come back, it's sort of like a broken record. If they come back with that response, then once you just repeat what you just said. I call it the broken record strategy. You just come back with what you said before. Again, it's my perception. 
And because it's my perception doesn't mean that it's wrong. You know, it, it doesn't mean that it's automatically wrong. My perception is based on my, my lifetime of experience with this. Uh, I just ex- ask you to accept my perception without judgment. Okay. Common response number three. Well, you know they didn't mean it like that. You know that wasn't their intent. So why do you get so upset about stuff like that? They didn't mean it. Come on. So, a response? A response to that response? Well, there's a big difference between intent and impact. You know, intent is one thing and impact is another. And so, for a lot of reasons, an experience can be hurtful without it being the intention of the person who's engaging in it for it to be hurtful. You know, I mean, it it can be hurtful because I've experienced it so many times. The sheer familiarity of it may be hurtful, you know. So, regardless of the other person's intent, the impact can indeed be hurtful and often is regardless of the intent. I mean, just think about it. You'd look at me pretty strangely if I, for example, stepped on your toe and then you yelled, ouch, that hurt. (laughs) And then I responded with, well, I didn't mean to step on your toe. Why is it hurting? (laughs) I mean, that's rather ridiculous, isn't it? Of course it is. Just because I didn't mean to step on your toe doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. My intent doesn't impact, uh, I'm sorry, yes, doesn't impact the impact on you. Um, So, uh, and, and in fact, it can be even more hurtful when you know it isn't the intent, when you know it's just something that is so automatic that that's the person's response to you. We're almost out of time now, my friends, and we've only gotten to... Common response three to the common responses. As I say, next week we'll do part two and we'll get through the others. I hope that this show has given you something to think about. I hope that it's given you reason to really reflect and to pause when you hear a friend describing their experiences and that you become curious and can respond with more empathy and more understanding and more openness when people describe to you what it's like to live with microaggressions based on race or disability or age or anything. That's what we need to have more compassion for each other. That's what we need to have more understanding. That's what we need to make this a better world. Thank you for listening again this week. My name is Lauren Nile. I'm your host. Join me again next week for The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. Thank you for listening to The Fate of Humanity, Crucial Conversations for Our Survival. Please join your host, Lauren N. Nile, for another edition of our program next Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you right here next week.